Well, again, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1. If you are new to us this week, we've been walking through the book of Titus. It's a little bitty pastoral letter in the back end of the New Testament that Paul writes to a young man named Titus. Now, as you're turning there, I want to just remind you, Zoe's, uh, we have a banquet, 10-year anniversary on the 18th. That's a Saturday evening. And then that Sunday, we have our evening of thanks. We'll take the Lord's Supper together and we'll eat. So this is like the month of eating. And then you'll eat in December. And then you'll make a resolution in January. And you'll drop that resolution by February. This is just what we do, all right? So uh, we hope that you can come and join us for those things. If you want tickets for Zoe's out in the foyer, you do have to pay for that. Uh, evening of thanks is free, but man, we hope you can come and support Zoe's on the 18th. Now, as a dad, one of my jobs is to tell bedtime stories. Uh, I'll be very just clear with you. I, I'm not the most creative storyteller. I, I just have to you know, borrow ideas. And so what I'll do with our children is from time to time, I'll take a a traditional story that you are all aware of, and I'll, I'll tell the story, and, and maybe I'll just bring in some other elements that confuse the children about what is actually happening. So, for example, there's this one story, and if I ruin this story for you, that's on you. It's been around for like 200 years, but it's uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood goes to see Grandma, and uh, as she goes, she notices when she gets there that Grandma looks a little bit different Got a little bit more hair. It's like, oh, Grandma, what big ears you have, which is, by the way, really odd. Hey, what big ears you have? She's like, oh, sweetie, only to hear you better. Oh, Grandma, what big eyes you have. Oh, that's only better to see you. And then it's, uh, oh, Grandma, what big mouth you have. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, the wolf comes out of the, the, the Grandma's clothes and like, ah, I'm going to eat you or whatever. But I'll change the story and I'll say something like, you know, oh, Grandma, what big mouth you have. And then that's when the wolf says, oh, only to eat you. And that's when Little Red Riding Hood pulls out a big old knife and guts the wolf. And it's like, ah, which is super violent. And it's like right before bed. And I get a text from him. It's like, what are you doing? It's like telling a bedtime story. This is what we do. I'm so sorry. But I think it tells the story better. Anyway, so... The, the whole premise, though, is, is the point of the story originally. The point of the story originally, and I think even in my version, which is better, is to simply say you need to be aware of your surroundings. You need to be aware of those that are in your midst that, that might deceive you. That's really the moral of the story, and, and that's really the element that I'm trying to drive home to our kids as they're going to sleep, and Sometimes they're better than that, sometimes they're worse than that, but, but that's just kind of the idea. Well, okay, so in Titus, Paul has set up that there needed to be godly leaders for a particular reason, and one of those reasons is what he's going to talk about today in verses 10 through 16. That, that reason particularly is to fence the flock, to protect the flock, because inside the flock there were false teachers rising up. And so what, what Paul is going to do, and, and again, there could be seven of these, but I'm just going to boil it down to three, three signs of a false teacher. Three signs of a false teacher. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1. We're going to read verses 10 through 16. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we'll put on the screen so you can follow along. But if you're there, will you say a word? For there are many rebellious people, 
full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to gain or to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true for this reason. Rebuke them sharply so that they they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. All right, the first sign, the first sign of a false teacher is we're going to use divisive words. Divisive words. Now, the way Paul begins this is he's going to say four And this four is a hinge to the rest of the text. It hinges into verse nine, which he's describing the teaching of sound doctrine. So there's this need for sound doctrine because there are people that are coming against the churches there in Crete. Remember, Titus was somewhat overseeing multiple congregations on the island of Crete. Now, what Paul does not do is he doesn't start naming names, and I'm so grateful he doesn't. Instead, he gives us a description of those that are false teachers. If in the prior verses, he gave us descriptions of godly leaders, their character, how, uh, how they act and how they, how they are, here he's going to give some descriptors of those who might lead the church astray. Now, the church will always face problems. The church will always face problems. Problems. I, I used to believe that when I got to college that I could find the perfect church, only to realize that the moment I joined a church, it no longer was perfect. And, and then you even come to the place where you're somewhat giving a leadership position within the church, and all of a sudden you realize how little control you actually have over things, and some of the problems that exist within a church are often due to the decisions that the leadership has made. I mean, this is the reality. But here, notice, Paul does not address the issues that are facing the Cretans, or facing the churches in Crete, the issues of the culture. Notice that here, Paul's not going to address the culture war that's going on. He's not addressing the the wickedness that everybody's doing whatever they want to do. He's not addressing how godless the the, the island that they live in is. He's not doing that. Instead, he's telling them and warning them that the primary problems that are going to come at the church are not from outside the, the, the flock, but from inside the flock. The majority of problems that exist on a church do not come from outside pressure. They come from inside individuals who are using divisive words to stir up the church away from the truth. Most often the problems that a church has come from within, not from outside. 
And so Paul here is saying, hey, the reason why you need godly elders, the reason why you need godly men to lead the church is primarily because there is going to be from inside the temptation for individuals to divide and twist things to their own advantage and therefore bring disunity to the church. Christianity, to a degree, is always one generation away from dying. Now, I don't believe that Christianity will die because Jesus loves the church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But there is a degree of which we have to be careful about those that are dividing or using divisive words to stir up the flock. We have to be aware because that's often where our biggest threats come from. And so Paul will say... Hey, we've got to be aware there are many, many rebellious people. It can be a challenge within the local church when there are a lot of people who have gathered around and are against the truth. This comes to us as pastors of, well, there's a lot of people saying. And you say, well, well who? I say, well, I can't name names. There's just a lot of them. There's many. And in the midst of that, you have to be aware to go, hey, whoa, I've got to be a, a truth seeker because there are many that may try to divide or twist things to their own advantage. And we have to be aware of that, he says, because many of them are full of empty talk, meaning they use lots of words, but the words they use are useless. I, I have this perception that anybody with an English accent is smarter than me automatically. You, you have that same thing? Like, I'm not the only one. But then sometimes you're listening to what they're saying and going, yeah, but the more I listen to it, the more he's wrong. But he does sound smart. This is similar to those within the church that will use divisive words or twisting words for their own advantage, and they will divide the flock against itself. Now, he says they have empty talk, and it can be at times hard to confront them. But look what he says he says, they're especially from those of the circumcision party. Now, I'll just be really clear. If I get an invitation to a circumcision party, I'm probably not going to go. <laughs> just putting it out there. But several times, several times in Acts, twice in Acts, uh, and once in Galatians chapter 2, Paul's going to use this term circumcision party. What, what was happening was that there were Jews who were joining the church. And when they were joining, they were beginning to say, hey, it's one thing to have faith in Christ. However, you also must follow all the dietary regulations of a Jew. You also must be, particularly here, circumcised. You also must follow all the rituals and holidays of a Jew. So if you really wanna be saved, Oh, yeah, sure, put your faith in Jesus, in Christ alone, but you also must do these things. So listen, friend, when you try to add to Christ, you will eventually subtract from Christ. When you try to say, hey, you're saved through faith, but also you must do these things to be saved, you're actually adding a regulation, a burden, you're twisting words on to others. It's why we would say you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. What this means is that for you to be saved, God's grace is revealed to you. You then believe in 
Jesus, placing your faith in Jesus, and that's all according to the scriptures, and the scriptures tell us that when you believe in Jesus, he gives you the right to become a child of God. All that is in accordance to scripture. All that is according to his works, not your works. And what happens within the church is that we'll build into this temptation to think that it is our work that makes us saved and it is our works that keep us saved. And what that does is actually lead us to two different places. One, it leads us to spiritual pride and it also can lead us to spiritual despair. It leads us to spiritual pride because if we think we're the ones that did the work of our salvation, we'll become boastful in that and praising ourselves. It's why we, we never will sing a song of how glorious we are in choosing Jesus. We always sing about how glorious he is in choosing us. It's his grace. It's a wonder of his mercy that he would love somebody like me, somebody like you. John 3, 16, I'm quoting it from the Christian Standard Bible. It's just the preference of this verse. He says, God loves the world in this way. I love that. This is the way in which God loves the world, that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have life everlasting. What was happening in this church is that some were saying, yes, believe in Jesus, but do all of these things for you to keep your salvation. If you did nothing to receive it, you can't do anything to lose it. So the temptation for them was saying, look, if you're a Christian, you're going to do all these things, and therefore, therefore you'll be able to keep it, then you won't lose it. But if I didn't do anything to gain it, it's just his grace, it's his mercy to me, then I can't do anything to lose it. And what's happening here is that when you think it's your works added to the work of Christ, you'll lead to a spiritual prideful life. You become a legalistic, which is happening here. You'll become boastful, look at how much better of a Christian I am. And then what happens though is over time, if that's your mentality, you'll fall into spiritual despair because you realize I can't keep up with all the rules and regulations that I've put upon myself. And so he says, hey, beware of them. They're of the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. And they're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. He, he's saying, what's happening here is these individuals are bearing a load onto others. See, well, Jews were joining the church and, and, and they certainly were claiming in their lips to believe that Jesus, that, that, that salvation was through Jesus alone. But then they were saying, hey, you have to be circumcised. Hey, you have to follow these rules. And they were hesitant to allow any Gentiles to be part of the fellowship because they weren't pure. It's a very dangerous game that they are playing. But the reality is, is that that's why we have to be aware when we're trying to add to Christ. Now, I can feel the tension because some of us are going, but if you are a Christian, aren't there things you ought to be doing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But here's the way I look at it. When you're planted in Christ, it's just natural that over time, you're going to produce the fruit of Christ. If you're not in Christ, there is no way possible for you to produce the fruit of Christ. If you claim to be an orange tree, but you only produce apples, I'm sorry, you're not an orange tree. 
It's why what you believe really does matter. There are some that will teach, oh, what you believe, as long as you're sincere in your belief, who cares what you believe or who you believe in? We're all going to the same place. Wrong. Listen, if you believe you can fly because somebody sang about it. Right? Y'all, know this, y'all know the song? Do we need it? I can believe. I, no, I'm, I'm going to But you then travel to the Grand Canyon and particularly the North Kaibab. It's much prettier than the South Kaibab. You go to the North Kaibab and you say, I believe I can fly. I believe I can fly. I'm, I'm sincere about it. I believe with all my might I can do this. And then you take a step over the rail. What is going to happen? Gravity. And gravity is undefeated. And it doesn't matter how sincere you are. It's why who you believe in really does matter. What was happening within the church, it was rising up among them. They were trusting in their works, not the finished work of Jesus. And friends, that's so dangerous. So dangerous. So Paul says, hey, Titus, be aware that there are those from the circumcision party and they're using divisive words to draw people away. Again, the greatest danger for us is not from outside, but from inside the church. So, not only is there divisive words, there's also deceptive motives. You see it in verse 11? He says that at the very end here. They they want money dishonestly. Their, Their desire is to not serve the flock Their desire is to pad their pockets. Over time, a preacher, what he really believes will come out in his preaching. It's just just a matter of time. I mean, just just listen to what they have to say. Over time, what a uh, elder or pastor really wants, it will will come out. It's just a, a matter of time. And so my commitment to you, it's why we're preaching through books of the Bible, because I, I know you may have come here today and go, man, I just want an encouraging word, and here he is talking about it. We've got to be aware of false teachers. I want to preach God's word, and it's the cup of tea that I have to serve, and it may not be your cup of tea, but it's all I got. And so in this, I, I want I want your family to to thrive here. I I want your marriage to be solid and built up. I'm not trying to call out anybody. I'm trying to call you up to somebody. And so for us, when I look at this, there are those who have deceptive motives. And over time, it will become clear what the motive is. And Paul is saying, hey, their motives, they want money. They're just after money. And what he does in the next verse, in verse 12, he actually quotes one of their very own. And he says, so again, Paul's not calling them this, but he is quoting somebody who calls them this. He said, Cretans, so on the island of Crete, they are liars, ouch, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. We, we know what a liar is, somebody who says one thing, maybe does another, that's, that's a liar. So we're, we're aware of that. A, a, an evil beast uh, an evil beast is, is someone who has no regard of their surroundings. When I run on Redbud Road, which is just a, a road that connects Chandler to 
Brownsboro, when I run, there's often that I will hear a, uh, I think they're evil. I, I, I hear an evil beast in the distance. Now, now listen, friends, I love dogs. I, I love that you have dogs. But when I see a dog that I don't know, it's an evil beast to me. You ask, I carry mace with me when I run on these roads. Because just even yesterday, as I'm running, I hear, I think they opened the door and ran out of the door. Because I heard the door shut. And I hear this evil beast barking and yelling, hey, hey. I mean, that's, what, that's obviously what they're saying. And I can hear it getting louder, and I, there's no way I can run any faster. I, I'm going to be mauled. This is in my mind. This is what, devour me. This is what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, I'm so grateful for the mace in my pocket, and I'm so grateful for the electric fence. I mean, these things keep the evil beast out. My point in all of that is to say an evil beast has no regard of their surroundings. That's why those dogs aren't necessarily evil. They just letting everybody know that they know what's going on. But these Cretans, they have no regard for anyone else. So over time, he's saying, so from within the church, you're going to have individuals who have no regard for anybody else. They only care for themselves, and they're lazy gluttons. They, they serve to serve themselves. If they serve anybody, they serve them not anyone else. And so Paul is saying, hey, you've got to be aware. They've got some deceptive motives. Look, look at verse 13. He says, this testimony is true. So Paul says, look, we've, we've seen this happen. Titus, you're seeing this take place. And obviously, Paul, who's gone from here now, Titus, is, they've gotten word to him that these things were happening. And he says, for this reason, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them. If you've ever grabbed a tomato and then grabbed a, a knife from the drawer and had a really hard time cutting and slicing a tomato, you know how frustrating that is. You realize, man, it's, it seems probably been a year since we've sharpened our knives, but, but you go in and, and you have to sharpen it to, to get the precise thickness of that tomato. Imagine a surgeon who, who goes in to do surgery on you, maybe to, to cut out whatever cancer there is or infection in your body, and their scalpel is dull. It would inflict a lot of pain, I assume. I don't want to find out through experience. I assume it would inflict a tremendous amount of pain and a lot of frustration on the doctor. Paul says to Titus, you've got to come to them and you have to be pointed, sharp. It has to be with precision. You're not blowing them out of the water. you just, hey, this is not where we're going to be. This is not where we're at. And it's not a control thing or trying to be authoritative over everybody. It's a, no, no, we're trying to protect because sometimes even the best of men and the best of women have deceptive motives. And so he says, hey, rebuke them sharply. Now, why? Notice here, he says, so that. He tells us why we're doing this. So that they may be sound, keyword, in the faith. Why does he say this? He's not telling the elders to rebuke, to crush somebody. Like, like if, if you've got a, a leadership that goes, man, we, we rebuked eight people today. It was awesome. Right? It's like, bro. 
Because the point of rebuke is to build into redemption, not to run off. The, the key of fencing the flock is so that you may persuade another to right and sound thinking. Now this word sound in faith is connected to what he said in the previous verses, sound doctrine. It's why we have to be aware of what we're teaching and the ways in which we're teaching you as a flock. And so Paul's saying, hey, fence the flock. You've got to rebuke those that are coming at this in the wrong way sharply. But the point of it all is not to crush somebody. The point of it is to redeem them into sound doctrine, and and so you do not pay attention any longer to the Jewish myths, the fables, and the commands of people who reject the truth, saying those who have given themselves to this thinking think that if you don't buy into the myths or the commands of these things who reject the truth, then you're out. So you've got to say, I'm not going to pay attention to it any longer. So many of us are in danger because we're beginning to plant our flag with somebody's teaching because we saw it on YouTube. And it very well may not be sound in the faith. It very well may not be of sound doctrine. It, it again, it, it is why wh what you believe does matter. And and our commitment to you is to preach the full counsel of God's word. And it's easy to be able to stand and rant against the godless culture. Every church in the New Testament was facing a godless culture. And Paul's instruction here is not to rant against the godless culture. It's to warn that the temptation inside the flock is of great danger. So he says, don't pay attention to it. Don't, don't pay attention. We know the opposite of this. So often, I am found guilty of paying attention to a screen when my own children are trying to speak to me. I'm paying attention to the wrong things, the lesser things when the greater things are right. So, so here's what Paul's saying, don't pay attention to them any longer. Don't pay attention to that mess. It, it's leading you down a path. It's, it's a deceptive, they have deceptive motives. So, we no longer should plant our flag on these types of myths or on these commands of those who reject the truth. Look at verse 15, he'll say this. So then he says, to the pure everything is pure, but to those who are defiled, meaning they are unbelieving. They're defiled and unbelieving. Nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. The, the picture that Paul is giving here is that if you are trusting in Jesus as Savior plus your own efforts, plus adding something to the gospel, plus adding something to your, your salvation, for example, if you've tried to teach that you are saved not just through 
the work of Christ, but also you must follow these dietary rules. Follow these particular people. Follow, let's just, let's just say it this way. Maybe you are saying you must speak in tongues, which is a, an unknown language. So to be saved, not only should you follow Christ, but you also must speak in a tongue. That actually is a false teaching. And when that is taught and, and, and promoted from within the body, it actually leads to much destruction. Because the scriptures don't say, follow Jesus and you must speak in a language of the heavens. No, he says, follow Jesus and his finished work. But if you're unbelieving, what, what Paul is giving a picture here is of, of total depravity. Now, when I say total depravity, that doesn't mean utter depravity, that you don't do any good. It's just saying that when you are born, theologically, you and I are born with sin in our hearts. And that sin corrupts or defiles how we think and what we think is right and wrong, our ethics. So what happens is that every person that's ever been born has been born with a mark of sin. It means you will never come to the right conclusion under your own abilities. Instead, the grace of God must be revealed to you, and I believe that he has made that possible to every person from eternity on. He has, he has, God has sent the son Jesus to the earth as the greatest missionary ever. He lived the life that we could not live and died the death we deserve to die. I'm presenting to you the gospel right now. His grace is being revealed to you now. And he says, if you believe in me, you will be saved. His grace is revealed to you. You then therefore believe in him and then therefore you are saved. But Paul says if you don't believe in the grace of God, if you believe it is according to your works and efforts, your mind and conscience are defiled. And so the motives of these false teachers is that they're actually not even saved. There's no evidence of God's grace in their life. They have divisive words. They have deceptive motives. And, and then thirdly, thirdly, they have defiled actions. Look what he says in 16. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They have defiled actions. When it comes down to this, the things that they do, the fruit that they produce from their life is actually evidence that they do not know God, God alone. Their actions, when you begin to observe their life, it becomes clear that they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. They may know all the language. They may be nice people. They may have all the, the right Bibles and a, a bookshelf full of them, but in reality, they have no relationship with the living God. There are people who grow up in an environment of the church and yet their hearts have never trusted in Christ. You can grow up in the church environment and not know Jesus in a personal and saving way. You can speak the right vocabulary. You can give money. You can even serve at vacation Bible school and get a graduate's degree from it as well. But that will not make you a Christian. The only thing that makes you a Christian is God revealing himself and you choosing to follow him. 
And the result of that life is that when we begin to observe your life, there will be fruit that is produced that makes clear that you are saved. So for some in this room, when you do a brief inventory, you begin to realize, man, I, I do not know Christ. Man, I've sung the songs and I've listened to the sermons and I've given money and I've given time, but, but my heart has no affection for him. And I think in part, Paul is trying to, in this text, rebuke us sharply. Confront us, if that is us. But I think secondly, there's also this reality of he's called upon on the front end need, the need for men of integrity and godly character and sound doctrine to encourage but also instruct. He, there's this great need for that. And so maybe, maybe it lands for you to go, I desire, I don't think of that, but I desire to be a man of integrity. And maybe an application for our ladies is the same as well. To desire righteous character that can only come through Christ. To be aware of our surroundings and to not become so gullible to the things of this earth. To be able to clearly identify something is amiss. And while I joke about the Little Red Riding Hood pulling out a, a buoy knife or a large knife, did you know that God's word is described as the sword of the spirit? And you often will fall into all kinds of temptation, most often because your sword is not sharp. So for us, what is what does that land for us? We're not naming names. There's not a list of people that we keep in the office and go, oh, false teacher. We're not, we're not doing that. We would just say for you to consider, have you become divisive in your words? Have you, have you become somebody whose, whose motives and maybe their actions have become defiled? Here's what's so beautiful about the gospel. There's, there's not a 12-step a, a that you got to go through. It's just you saying, Lord, I, I confess that I've bought into some things that I'm, I'm repentant of. And I want to be a unifier under the gospel message because that's what saves man. So for us, we're going to invite you to pray. We're going to invite you to come to the altar and pray if you want. To pray where you sit. But I think for us is to really consider Where's my heart for the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that we would be obedient to what you've called us to. Lord, we're grateful for the chance to even open your word. Lord, may we become sharp in the word. Lord, we ask that as we respond now that you would be ever so kind to us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the chance to respond here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're